Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian Dixon. I am the music director here at GCF. And this morning, I have the privilege of sounding like I'm in a cave. (laughs) Watch out. I get to share God's word this morning. And I'm excited about that. We're going to be taking a break from our normal series in John. And today, uh, I'm going to be sharing from Psalm 95, as you heard read already. Uh, Before we jump in, though, let me pray one more time uh, for our time in the Word. Father in heaven, Lord, help me in this time to share your Word in a way that honors your name. Help us to receive it. God, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord? And would you remind us that we serve a living God? Thank you that we get to do this. Thank you that you have invited us in. So God, thank you. I praise praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1999, I was a freshman in high school. And at that time, I was really into baseball. Loved baseball. I played baseball. I got to play at some pretty high levels. And so as I'm going into high school, I'm really excited because now I get to try out for the high school team. And the high school I was at was a big high school. It was competitive. Uh, As a freshman, to, to even make JV was like, oh, man, like, you're it. You know, And so I try out, and, and there's a lot of guys trying out, and I'm just like, man, if I make JV, it'll be a miracle. And by a miracle, I made varsity, the only freshman to make varsity that year. So, I mean, I was feeling pretty good about that, I'm not going to lie. You know, I could all of a sudden walk around school just a little more, you know. I was pretty excited. And as... Uh, the coaches are grooming me to be a pitcher. I'm left-handed, and they want some left-handed pitchers, so they're grooming me. I'm learning how to throw curveballs and change-ups and all that good stuff. And right before our season starts, during a practice, I throw out my arm and tear my rotator cuff, ending my season and really my chances for baseball. So crushed, my dreams of being a Major League Baseball player now gone, I'm home, feeling depressed and angsty, teenager. And my mom's friend, just in a lot of grace, hands me her guitar and just says, like, just an offering of like, here, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. Maybe this, this hobby will be something that will encourage you. So this is where things changed for me dramatically, learning how to play guitar. Changed the whole trajectory of my life. But learning how to play that guitar was not easy because playing guitar, there's a couple things that need to happen. In order to play guitar and play music that people actually want to listen to, you have to know how to strum the guitar while playing a chord. If I just play a chord, well, that's just awkward silence, right? And if I just strum the guitar, it's just chaotic noise. Playing music and playing the guitar is a simultaneous act of chord structure and rhythmic strumming. Now, worship. Worship is similar in the sense that biblical worship is a simultaneous act 
of joyful praise and humble obedience. Joyful praise and humble obedience. The problem is, though, many who desire to worship God really only want the feel-good experience of worship. And we don't want to be told or have the obligations of God's word. I want to come, I want to feel God, I want to experience God. But really, I don't want to be told that I need to live my life that way. And this raises the question, what does the Bible say about worship? What does worship look like? Why do we even do it? And that brings us to our text this morning. Psalm 95 is in a series of psalms from 95 to 99, and it's known as an enthronement psalm. Now, according to many scholars, Psalm 95 was sung in worship uh, during Jewish festivals of faith. And there, there was a ritual where Yahweh God was represented as seated on his throne as king. Psalm 95 is also divided into two parts. You have the part where there's the call to worship, and then the second is a message from the Lord, a warning against rebellion and disobedience. So with that, we're going to unpack this psalm under two main headings, two main points this morning. The first being this, biblical worship is a call to joyful praise, and second, biblical worship is a call to humble obedience. So first, biblical worship is a call to joyful praise. Well, what does joyful praise look like? Well, look with me at verses one and two. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So right away we see that joyful praise involves joyful music, specifically singing. Now it shouldn't be a surprise to us that singing is part of biblical worship because singing expresses human thought emotionally. And Christianity is a feeling religion. We don't check our feelings at the door when we come to church. Bob Coughlin, who serves as a director of Sovereign Grace Music, he says this about why God would have music and song occupy such an important part of our gathered worship, but also just in our life in general. He says this, God has taken the most precise way of communicating truth, which is words, and combined it with the vaguest way of communicating truth, which is music, and he's put them together to make singing. The purpose is that what we uh, know with our minds gets connected to our hearts. God designed singing to help us feel the truth. More specifically, it's meant to help us feel the gospel. From Genesis chapter 2, where we see Adam singing and praising God for the woman that God has made for him, to Revelation, where we see the bride of heaven rejoicing for the groom God has given her. All throughout the Bible, we see people praising God with joyful music. But not only that, not only joyful music, but we also see that joyful praise is expressed through joyful fellowship. 
Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Oh, come let us, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, personal worship is very important. And singing isn't the only way to worship God, but the Bible does teach us that one of the chief ways we are to worship him is to come together and to sing and praise his name. The Apostle Paul, he reinforces this point. He says this in Ephesians chapter five. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Also in Colossians, he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ, which is the gospel, is to dwell in us richly through singing, and singing together is what helps us do that and express that. I had the opportunity years ago to go to Together for the Gospel Conference. It's a big conference. I was really excited to go. And one of the main reasons I was excited is because I wanted to hear the music. Like, man, what's the music like? There's about 10,000 people in attendance, so I'm assuming man, music is going to be like electric guitars and crazy and lights and all kinds of cool stuff. So in that anticipation, when it's time to sing, I was surprised when Bob Coughlin, who I just quoted, walks out by himself, sits down at a piano, and leads 10,000 mostly men, pastors, in a time of singing, and it was unbelievable. I have never experienced anything like that where the voices were all one voice crying out to God so loud and so joyful. It took everything that I was hearing at that conference, everything that was the head knowledge was just flooding to my heart. It felt like I had a, just a small glimpse into what heaven is like. It also helped me see and recognize the reality that in corporate worship, the body of Christ is the main instrument. Now, at this point, I'm just going to assume that there might be a few of you in here thinking, all right, Brian, okay, so I understand that we're supposed to sing, I understand we're supposed to have fellowship, but I'm just not feeling it, man. And I'm not a good singer, so you don't want me to sing and it makes me really hard for me to engage in a time of singing joyfully. But to that, I would just say, or I would ask these questions, like, what is our motivation for worship? Why do we come and gather together to sing praises to God and hear his word preached? Is it because it makes you feel good? Or maybe you recognize it, yeah, I, I see in the Bible that I need to sing, I need to have fellowship. So out of obligation, I stand when I'm told to and I monotone sing my way through and I just get through the songs. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you really want to impress God and impress people with how well you sing and how excited you are in worship. Whatever it may be, the reality is this, if our worship is more focused on the attributes of man on us and not on the attributes of God, we will always struggle to joyfully express ourselves singing to Jesus because we will be too focused here. Well, we need to be more outwardly focused on the Lord. Psalm 95 is showing us that joyful praise is motivated not by what we bring to the table, but by who God is. Look with me at verses three through five. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Joyful worship is motivated by understanding who God is, and it's important that we, we begin with God as the author, the creator, and the sustainer of all things. Often, though, in our haste to get to church, life is busy, it's crazy, we're just trying to get there, right? Right? we can forget as we walk into this place, as we come together to worship, who we're worshiping. We are coming to the God who is seated on the throne, high and lifted up above everything and everyone else. And there are angels in numbers too great to count that are worshiping him. And they are crying out in such a loud voice, the foundations of heaven shake. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, not ours. There is nothing and no one greater than Yahweh. Try to picture that for a moment, just in your mind's eye. This scene that is happening. Our God is alive and living. This is what's going on. We get to come to this place and worship him. So again, just imagining for a moment what that picture is like, the intensity of that scene. Again, God high and lifted up, angels singing his praises so fervently. It's like a thunderstorm. Or maybe, maybe to drive it home for us a little more, it's, it's like a Seahawks game. Has anybody ever, ever been to Lumen Field and been to a Seahawks game, any of you? Yeah, it is insane. I have never been to anything more loud in my life. I've been to a lot of concerts. I have four kids. And yet, that was like, whoa, crazy. People going nuts, all cheering, excited, high-fiving, hugging strangers. And yet, how much more does the body of Christ have reason to come and shout and sing for praise to the almighty God who has gathered us who has called us to this purpose. This is the God that Psalm 95 is pointing us to as our motivation for joyful praise. But joyful praise is not only motivated by God's creative works, it's also motivated by God's redemptive works and his care. Look with me at verses six and seven. Oh, come, 
Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Now notice how verses 6 and 7, they mimic verse 1 and 2, and that they are calling God's people to come and worship. But there is a contrast here between verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7. Verses 1 and 2 is a call to sing joyfully to the Lord because he has created all things. Verses 6 and 7, though, is a call to worship, to come and worship God in reverence because God has intimately redeemed and he leads his people like a shepherd leads his sheep. I also want to point out how the psalmist says in verses 4 and 5, he, he's pointing out the power of God's hand to form all things, to create. And then in verse 7, the tenderness of God's hand to lead his people. And we know from the gospel accounts, it's those same hands, right, that were nailed to a cross, that took the weight of our sin, my sin and your sin, Casting Crowns, who's a contemporary Christian artist, they came out with a song this year. It's called Scars in Heaven, and they really nailed this, uh, this theme of, of, of the scars on Jesus' hands. And the chorus of the song says this, the only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There'll be no such thing as broken, and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold you now. Psalm 95 is teaching us that the call to joyful praise is motivated by the power of God's creative and redemptive works. But our worship of God does not stop here. And this brings us to our second main point this morning. First, biblical worship is a call to joyful praise. And second, biblical worship is a call to humble obedience. Well, what does humble obedience look like? The answer, humble obedience heeds the warning. Humble obedience heeds the warning. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah or on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now, the end of verse 7 takes this dramatic shift, right? Going from this call to joyful and exuberant praise to reverence to a somber warning. And it points out to us or, or highlights to us the importance of not only singing to God and telling God things, but coming and listening 
hearing God speak. This is why he says, today if you hear his voice, the psalmist is referring to God's word. The Holy Scriptures is where God has chosen to explicitly speak to his people, and he is warning us here that if you harden your hearts to what God has said, you will end up like the Israelites who quarreled and tested God in the wilderness. And I think it's important that we, we look at that, what the psalmist is referencing here. He's referencing the trial at Meribah, but more generally he's speaking of Israel's refusal to trust God to enter into the promised land when God first offered it to them in their exodus. We find this account recorded in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And what happened there was God led his people out of Egypt and he led them to Mount Sinai. And they were there for a year and while they were there, God gave them the law. They established the priesthood. They built a tabernacle and they organized themselves And then they marched out from Mount Sinai, and as they were coming out from Mount Sinai and into Canaan, the promised land, they sent spies in. They had 12 spies they sent in, and those spies go in, and they are like, whoa, this is amazing. This land is beautiful. It's lush. As they described, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but then they also observed the people that were inhabiting that land Well, they were a warrior people. And so they come back and they report both things. Like, the land that God has for us is amazing. But there's also these people there. And of the 12 spies that went in, 10 of them were saying, we can't can't take that land. The enemy's too great. There is no way we can get in there and we can have that land. But two, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, They said, no way, that is our land. God has promised us this land. God will give us the victory. We need to go and we need to take it. But it was there where Israel refused to go into the promised land that God said, you've rebelled against me. You have hardened your hearts against me that this generation that has refused to listen, that generation of unbelief will die in the wilderness. And it is your offspring, your children, who will inherit the promised land by faith. The reality is this. We can never receive what God has for us if we harden our hearts like the Israelites did in the rebellion. We can never receive what God has for us if we harden our hearts like the Israelites did in the rebellion. And what was it that that generation of unbelief, what did they miss out on? What was it that they were really missing? Well, it says in verse 11, God says, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Now, it's interesting because this psalm, this is where the psalm ends, right? Kind of on a downer (laughs) as you go through this. And in most scenarios and in most cases, as you're going through a text like this, um, you, you would go through and say, okay, well, 
try and find some kind of spiritual application here to this and what, how this ended. But I think the beautiful thing about this text, Psalm 95 specifically, is that we have uh, an inspired New Testament commentary on this psalm. This psalm is found also quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 14, uh, verse 13. Psalm 95 is quoted four times. It's the most thorough citing of any Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And there the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that the meaning of this psalm is not exhausted by the entry of the people into Canaan or by their failing to enter, but it is to be seen in a far more important matter of entering the promised rest of God, which is in heaven. One scholar puts it this way. He says this, Hebrews forbids us to confine the psalm's thrust to Israel. The today of which it is speaking is this very moment. The you is none other than ourselves, and the promised rest is not Canaan, but salvation. The uniqueness of Hebrews is that this was a letter written to Christians, written to the church, written to those that have heard the gospel, and many of them who seem to respond to that gospel by going to Christian worship services. But for many of them, they had not actually surrendered their life to Christ. And so they were in danger of falling away from Christ completely and entirely. And this is why Hebrews, he says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in you in, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is important to believe in Jesus Christ now. Now. While it's still today. The psalm says, today if you hear his voice in verse 7, and Hebrews repeats that today five times, the point being this, that today is the day of salvation. Today is a day of gospel invitation, a call to come and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now is the time to turn from sin. Now is the time to believe and follow Jesus who, by the way, is seen throughout this whole psalm. I don't know if you noticed that as we're going through, but how Jesus is all over this psalm, all throughout. Look at verse one. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. The firm foundation for every believer especially those, those that have come today and you are feeling uh, worried and anxious and fearful. 
Today, you can put your trust in Jesus. Today, you can go to him. Today, you can confidently sing the words, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Furthermore, we see Jesus in verse 7. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Jesus is our shepherd. And we have been hearing about this the last few weeks as Dave has been preaching through John. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And then Revelation 7, we see this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For every believer, especially those of us, again, who have come, and maybe you're feeling just lost and and alone and, and misguided, remember today The good and great shepherd is leading you. The good and great shepherd is leading you. And one day, the beautiful picture we get to see, that one day our good and great shepherd will lead us all to springs of living water in the presence of God the Father Almighty. And lastly, we see that Jesus is the rest we enter into. Jesus is the rest we enter into. For the Israelites, what made the promised land restful was not the fact that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was not the fact that it was this beautiful and awesome place that was just like, oh, it's like on vacation and oh, this is nice. No, that's not what made it restful. What made it restful was that God chose this location to manifest his presence. This is where God said, this is where I decide I'm going to be, therefore my people will be here. This is where I'm dwelling. And what's interesting is in Colossians 1, it teaches us this. Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is why Jesus had the authority to say, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our resting place. He is our shepherd. He is our rock. And today is the day of salvation. If you have not yet, put your hope and trust in Jesus I implore you, please, today is the day. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow may not come. Today is the day to cry out to the Lord and to enter into the rest that he promises. Heed the warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but accept the invitation to enter God's rest. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, thank you in your great plan of salvation that you saw fit to not leave us here alone to wander like sheep scattered, but you graciously came. You gathered us, and you gently lead us. Thank you for the invitation, Jesus, to come, all who labor and are weary. Thank you that in you, Jesus, we find our rest. Thank you for being our shepherd and our firm foundation, our rock. Thank you for reminding us that worship is joyful. Worship is reverent. Worship is also obedient. I pray as we continue in our time of singing and worship through communion and sacraments, Lord, that you continue to work in and through us in ways that draws us into deeper relationship with you, greater understanding. Holy Spirit, counsel us. We need your help. And thank you that we got to hear your voice today. Amen.